You're listening to an audiobook presentation of The Grendel's Shadow by Andrew Maine. You can purchase it for 99 cents on Amazon, on their Kindle store, on your Kindle, or on all major phones using the Kindle app, including iPhones, Androids, Blackberries, and Windows 7. It's also available on the Nook store and Apple's iBooks. Or you can buy this entire audio presentation uninterrupted or a physical copy at andrewmaincom slash books. Chapter 11 Westwood patched up Smythe's head gash. The three of them were still soaked from the river. Alan's face, hair, and safari outfit were covered in a layer of dark green crab blood. It had been a long time since he had had that much blood on him. At least it wasn't his own this time. Westwood pulled down some branches and cut them into walking sticks that could be used as passable spears. With the aid of the spear, a fully alert Smythe was able to keep up a brisk pace into the moonlight. They marched on through the dawn, with Westwood periodically stopping so we could listen to the jungle. Alan could also hear things moving just outside their field of view. He kept his mouth shut and helped Smythe over the rougher parts of the terrain. When the sun began to rise, Smythe recognized some of the terrain. Uh, on foot, Grassy Bend is going to be an eight-day journey. Our best hope is finding one of the fishing villages that line the river. They continued on. Part of the trail they were following took them out of view of the river, so Westwood scrambled up tree trunks from time to time to get a better look. A few hours after dawn broke, he spotted two children in a canoe, he tried to flag them down from the tree, but they either couldn't see him or were too scared to acknowledge him. Eventually, they reached a clearing by the river across from a small stilt village. Dozens of huts were built on long shafts, lifting them thirty feet or more in the air. A spider web of rope bridges linked them all together. At one end, they spotted a group of people skinning a large fish hanging by its gills. A few small river crabs clamored below for any scraps that fell under the water. As they got closer, Alan got a sense of the scale of the creature. Its head and jaws were toothy like a great white shark. Its body, nearly as tall as the tallest hut, ended in five thick appendages, like a thick octopus. It was frightening from any direction. Alan looked at the river. Don't tell me those beasts are swimming around here too. Only to spawn upstream. They live and feed out in the ocean. Every now and then, the fishers manage to catch one in their nets, said Smythe. How do they kill it? asked Alan. Spears. It's a job for the whole village. Hours of work, but it's well worth the effort. Westwood spotted a man in a canoe near the riverbank at their side. He managed to attract his attention and flag him over. Before the man in the canoe reached the shore, Westwood turned to Smythe and Alan. For the time being, let's not announce who we are. Is there a town on the river beyond Grassy Bend we could say we're headed to? There's a vine distillery at Headrock, said Smythe. They got merchants and technicians through there from time to time. Perfect. I think for now it's better if whoever wanted us dead thinks we're dead. The man in the boat pulled up to the shore, shirtless with sun-bronzed skin. He gave them a toothy grin. You folks look lost. Westwood told him that they'd taken a trip from Headrock and got separated from their boats. The man volunteered to take them across the river so they could find a larger boat in the village to take them downriver. Smythe offered to pay the man, whose name was Murdoch, but he refused. He offered a finder's fee if he could 
procure them a local boat and crew to take them to Headrock. Murdoch said it might take a couple hours since most of the boats were out, but he didn't think it'd be too much of a trouble if the price was right. He guided them to the shanty that served as the local saloon and set about finding them a crew. From the open window, Alan watched as people dressed in leather aprons and went about dismantling the sharkling. First came the skin, then the fins, then the insides. It was fascinating to watch as each piece was removed and thrown into different piles. The skin was stretched out over long wooden pikes. It was as large as a roof. He looked up and... Sure enough, the roof was made from a patchwork of skins supported by struts made from larger bones. Westwood watched the process with equal interest. He seemed particularly attentive when they pulled the intestines out. Talon, they just look like guts. For a biologist like Westwood, they probably told as much of a story as the exterior anatomy. Smythe set three mugs on the table. Other than the bored teenage girl who was minding the bar... It was deserted as the town folk went about their daily work. Gentlemen, I, I owe you a sincere apology, said Smythe meekly. He looked at his folded hands. Westwood tilted his head. Smythe continued. The explosion on the boat. If what you say about the metal plate is true, then it was an attempt on my life. We've had some trouble. You may recall Mr. Thomas back at the port of entry. He's here because we've had some violations of the covenant. Small ones, to be sure, but significant. As part of our charter, we restrict certain things so that we can go about our lives in the way that we see fit. Unfortunately, some people are trying to bend the rules for their own gain. Survey teams from a locomotive line found various mineral deposits that had escaped the initial planetary survey. If we had known they were there, we would have just adjusted the charter to make mining them a little easier. With steam shovels and human labor, it's dangerous and inefficient work. The explosive on the steamboat is probably the same kind the people have been using smuggling into mine with. A fist full of the stuff can knock the side of a hill off and make it easy for a small crew to make a quick grab. All of which is illegal, of course, but it doesn't stop some from trying. We've got most of the gang who've been behind this, but a few more are out there. I'm the magistrate for the trial. I think they thought killing me would somehow help their case. Absurd, of course. But these people's limited ethics are matched by their limited intelligence. Smythe took a sip from his drink and looked out the window. Just one more challenge. Smythe got up to check on Murdoch's progress in finding a boat. Alan leaned into Westwood. You buy that? How do you mean? asked Westwood. I may not know man-eating creatures, but I know man. That story just doesn't ring fully true to me. Think he's hiding something? Definitely. I'm sure someone wants him dead. I'm just not sure the motivations are what he says they are. Westwood got up and walked over to a beat-up piano in the corner. He placed his drink on top and struck a key. It made a sound that almost passed for a piano note. Westwood rubbed his hands and then started to play a fast ragtime piece on the piano. The sound filled the whole bar. He then switched to another medley. Despite the condition of the piano, he played beautifully. The girl behind the counter looked slightly less bored. Westwood slowed the music down to almost a crawl. He had a far-off look in his eye. The music sagged into a child's nursery rhyme. Westwood played the notes over and over again. 
He paused and played the notes one last time. Without a word, he got up, walked out of the bar, leaving his drink on the piano. Chapter 12 Murdoch eventually managed to find a boat for them. Just under 30 feet long, it had a flat, open deck. It was used to haul machine parts up and down the river fork. Its sole crew member was a wiry old man named Ricardo, who wore an old-style naval cap. Without any cargo, its steam engine was able to keep going at a brisk clip. They waited until they were out of sight of the village to tell them their actual destination. Ricardo gave back a portion of the money and insisted he'd only charge them for as far as they were going. He'd grown up near the seaport where the Vine River spilled out into the ocean. Most of his life has been spent on the open ocean. He considered going upstream and hauling cargo on the river his retirement, quote-unquote. The rough seas of Vineland were no place for an old man like him, he explained. When Westwood found out the old sailor had circumnavigated the continent, he gently prodded him for details about the animal life. Ricardo obliged. You think you see just about everything on this rock? Then you pull into a natural harbor and see some creature you'd never expect. They got brush birds on the northern end that swim just like fish and pop up on land like there was nothing to it. Westwood pulled out his journal and showed him the illustration of the track. Ever seen a really big carnivore? Something that could leave a track this big? Ricardo looked it over while guiding the tiller. I don't pay much attention to tracks, but one time on the eastern end of the continent, I saw something. It found the mouth of a large river, and the captain had it in him that we should go take a couple launches up to see how far it went. It was just oars, real hard work. But I was bored of staring at the ocean, so I volunteered with seventeen fools. We rode up the river several days. It was just on and on. At night, we pulled our boats ashore used them as encampment. We didn't know what kinds of crabs or brushies they had. We'd seen some real big critters along the riverbank, and we didn't want to take our chances. We'd heard about vine hawks that could lift a man. About four days in, we come to a bend in the river, and we see what looks like the biggest yawn beast we'd ever seen standing in the water, only it's wailing like a lost calf. No place for that much meat in the launch, so we just keep rowing on. We get to the other side of the bend, and we see why it's crying. There on the shore is an even bigger yan. Must have been the mother. Only she's on its side and half-eaten. Then we see it. The meanest-looking demon in all of creation. Meaner than anything I've ever pulled up out of the water. I'd take a sharkling over this any day. Four legs... Real broad shoulders. His face was buried in the yawn and it was eating. Then it looks up at us. Real sly-looking eyes. Yellow devil eyes. A man could have walked from under its chin to its tail and never had its head touch its belly. Of course, I'd never let you get anywhere so close. We all look at the officer leading the excursion. The fool of a man. He gets this crazy notion we're going to kill it and build a raft to bring the body back to the ship. We try to tell him that that's not a notion an intelligent man would have. That only makes him more determined. He decides to lead by example. 
He has his launch pull up down shore and we follow because we have to. He starts handing out rifles, naval ones for killing a man. We load up our rifles on our launch and pull up on shore. Then we all look at each other, not sure what happens next. That's when McHenry, that's the officer, decided to lead a charge at the beast. He gets within ten yards and then unloads his rifle. The creature just flinches like it was nothing. We all start firing then. I don't know if any of us even hit. I doubt it would have mattered much. This creature just leaps toward McHenry and swipes at him like a vin cat at a baby brush bird. Like it was nothing. McHenry flew back at us with his chest all ripped open. He was dead before he hit the ground. We keep reloading, not knowing what else to do. The beast took a look at us like we weren't worth the bother. Went back to the yawn he was eating and dragged it away. Me and another one went out and grabbed what was left of dumb McHenry. Dragged him back to our launch. We all pushed back down river on account of the excursion being over because of McHenry's stupidity. When we get back to the ship, we didn't know what to tell the captain, so we settled on the truth. Chip's doctor looked at what had been left of McHenry, told the captain it was no mutiny attempt. We all agreed to tell McHenry's family he died heroically, not let on the account that they raised a fool. And that was the end of that. Ricardo spat in the water for effect. If you had to pick a family, something you've seen, the creature could be related to, what would you say? Asked Westwood. I seen Satan himself, once in the thick fog in the southern tip. Watched him pluck three men right off the deck. Came for me, but I held on to the mast tight as I could. Alan wasn't sure if the man was being metaphorical or literal. Westwood ignored the response entirely and pressed on. What about on land, near Vineport, or hereabout? I guess it looked like a vincat if you asked. Only a hundred times bigger and meaner. Ricardo scratched his chin. Say, you ain't the fool they brought in to go after whatever's causing that mess in the upcountry. Yes, said Westwood. I'd be that fool. Ricardo mumbled under his breath and spit in the water. Well, count me out. Chapter 13 The second day after they left the fishing village, they reached Grassy Bend shortly before nightfall. Ricardo had decided to ignore Westwood entirely the rest of the trip. A couple of times he'd bark at him to get out of the way and call him a McHenry. Westwood found the whole thing amusing. When they pulled up to the pier at Grassy Bend, there was no one waiting for them, most likely because the telegraph had already told the town they were dead. Alan climbed up on the pier and took the town in. It was laid out in an orderly fashion. It was much cleaner than Vineport. Gas lamps revealed well-kept houses and buildings, laid out over several parallel streets going up a hillside. At the top of the hill was a large, brightly lit building with several people milling around outside. Smythe pointed toward it. That'll be the Civic Hall. It looks like there's something going on. They offered Ricardo a night's stay, but he just begged them off and pushed on back upstream. As the trio got closer to the Civic Hall, Westwood turned to Smythe. Is it normal for all the buildings to be shuttered up? Smythe looked around. That's unusual, remarked Smythe. 
I hope we haven't had trouble closer to town. Oh, my. Over a rooftop, Westwood spotted movement. He gripped the stock of his rifle for a moment. Alan tried to make out what Westwood had just seen, but saw a tile roof and sky. Westwood waved in the direction he was looking, and the figure of a man holding a rifle near a chimney waved back. Westwood looked at the other rooftops. I count at least a half dozen men out there, at least that I can see. Other than the man who waved at them, Alan could see none. That's no good at all, said Smythe as he hurried up the hill to the hall. There were two men outside the hall holding rifles. One of them rushed up to Smythe to give him an embrace. Uncle Randolph! I knew it! We knew it! The young man had Smythe's dark features, but built into a taller, more athletic frame. I I'm all right, Frederick. I I'm fine. Is my wife here? Any sign of Patrick? She's inside. Patrick isn't back yet, but I'm sure he's okay. Smythe patted the young man on the shoulder and ushered Westwood and Alan inside. It took a moment before the crowd in the hall realized they had entered. Then it was a calamity as a hundred people rushed forward to greet him. Smythe's wife threaded her way through the crowd and took him into her arms. You old fool, she said, and planted a kiss on his cheek. What happened? he asked. The thing, the demon, had dragged off both of the Stevens and their... She choked up. Their baby! A poor thing! She buried her head in his shoulder. Smythe just stood there and caressed the back of her head. The rest of the crowd was still. What about the constable? asked Smythe as he tried to soothe his wife. A young man dressed in overalls with a rifle slung over his shoulder spoke up. He got dragged off in the brush bird last night while patrolling. That's the last we saw of him. Well, he shouldn't have been out there alone, chastened Smythe. He wasn't, Mr. Smythe. He pointed out another young man who could have been his brother. Ken and me, we were no further away than we is to you when it happened. Westwood spoke up. What did you see? Ken answered. Nothing. It was like night just reached out and grabbed him. He was going around the town making rounds when all of a sudden there was a wind and we hear his mount squawking up a storm because it got knocked on its side and Constable Jeff's saddle was empty. I got some blood spray on me, so did Bruce, but that's the last we saw the constable. We figured it'd be better if we just had everyone here at night and kept watch from the roofs, said Bruce. This thing don't even care about doors. It tore off the side of the Stevens place, and they're not more than 200 yards from here. I think you got the right idea. Tomorrow, I think we should have the men on the roofs pull back to here and set up a protected watch point further out. That way we can see it coming. Westwood looked around the room. Is the machinist here? Nobody spoke up. Let me guess, Mr. Stevens. Finally, Ken broke the silence. I think he finished the thing you asked for. I'm sure it's still in his place. Don't think anyone paid in any mind. I can get it tomorrow when we have a look there. Right now we just need to make sure everyone's safe inside here. He turned to Smythe. Tell your nephew and the other lookout that they should come inside. He looked around the hall. There were rows of benches in front of a long lectern. Let's push these benches up against the windows. I don't think a piece of glass is going to stop this animal if it's set on getting in here. The men and women quickly followed his instructions and began blocking the windows with the benches. This will do for now, but we need to do some things differently, 
He pointed at the Noyce brothers. Are you too handy with tools? Bruce answered. Not like Stevens, but well enough. All right. Well, I'm going to need you two to see that some of these things get done tomorrow. Westwood turned to Smythe. Where's the ladder to the bell tower? I saw someone up there. I'd like to have a look from there. Smythe led Westwood to a back alcove. Alan followed along. Westwood slung his rifle over his shoulder and climbed up the three stories to the bell tower. Alan began to follow him but stopped at the foot of the ladder when Westwood called down to him. Look around the hall for a portable gas lamp and something we can use as a reflector. I want to try and make a spotlight, a metal bowl, maybe a glass bowl, and some tin, anything. I'm sure it's out there now. Alan ran off to search through a storage closet in a pantry. Westwood pulled himself up the remaining rungs of the bell tower. A woman who looked to be in her 40s with her hair pushed back into a ponytail was on lookout with a hunting rifle. She didn't take her eyes off the town as Westwood stepped foot in the tower. I'll take it that you're one of the better shots in this town, said Westwood. Unfortunately so, she replied. Westwood scanned the perimeter around the town. There were three rows of streets lit by gas lamp and a long strip of lighted street that went down to the pier they had arrived. The edge of the town faded into a tree line outlined by the purple night sky. See anything, um, Miss, uh, Carpenter, Chill Carpenter, the town doctor and chemist. Sorry, Dr. Carpenter. Don't call me doctor and I won't call you professor, Mr. Westwood. Suits me. She looked out toward the tree line. I haven't seen anything, but I can feel it. I know that's not a scientific way to describe it, but I know it's out there. Westwood searched the darkness for any kind of sign. I know the feeling. Out there, beyond the spill of light, something filled with rage looked up at them, waiting, hating. Grendel's Shadow is available on Amazon for 99 cents. Buy it on your desktop or your Kindle. You can also use the Kindle app. Available on the iPad as well as all major phones, including iPhones, Blackberries, Windows 7, and Android. You can also look for it on the Nook Store and Apple's iBooks. If you'd like to purchase this audiobook in its entirety without interruption, or a physical copy of Grendel's Shadow, head to andrewmain.com books. This presentation has been read by Justin Robert Young. <laughs>